Welcome to another episode of the Reboot Chronicles, a no-holds-barred forum with global leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and CEOs about how organizations stay focused on growth and innovation in unprecedented times. I'm your host, Dean DeBias, coming to you live from Revive's North American headquarters in Chicago, and we would like to thank you for joining us from around the globe today. I'd like to welcome Pauline Brown to the program today. She's an author, luxury guru, serious XM host, and former North American chairman of LVMH, what I like to call the world's leading luxury products group. They've got about 75 brands, 60 billion in revenue approximately, that was last year, and a retail network spanning over 5,000 stores, selling everything from fashion to cosmetics to champagne, something I like to talk about today. Uh, welcome, Pauline. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, looking good there, New York. I um, we usually start out with some data on this uh, show if there is any floating around. So I've got some that on the you know the luxury market. I thought we'd kind of throw it out there, maybe we can chat about it. But um, this is from Bain. This is from the Luxury Report, and also some data from uh, Revive, our sponsor. The um, short term, it looks like the uh, personal luxury goods. Uh, is going to fall about 60% global revenues in Q2. I don't think that's a big surprise. Some people thought it might be 40, but it's pretty big. Um, previous reports before the uh, pandemic was the market might reach 1.5 trillion by 2025. Not sure you're on board with that. We'll find out. And with China still making up about half of that, millennials, they say, representing about half of that. I don't think that's accurate, but uh, again, older data. But exper experiential uh, luxury is growing faster than all the other categories. This is what I do believe. For those of you that don't know what that is, obviously it's dining, hotels, cruises, resorts, wine, spirits, furniture, lighting. I don't know how lighting gets in there. Cars, <laughs> boats, and technology. Technology, that's me. Sign me up. So, um, And again, they think China is probably going to be 40% of that market. That was pre-travel issues. So uh, I thought maybe that'd be a good place to start. What uh, What do you think of the luxury market? Is uh, Is it as bad as some people are saying? Well, first of all, there's there's no natural definition of a luxury market. It's not like uh, uh, what is luxury. I mean, if I even look within the LVMH portfolio, you have brands uh, that are like a Sephora. If you look at who shops at a Sephora, it's the same woman who shops at Target. She probably spends more at Sephora on cosmetics than she would spend on personal care or cosmetics at Target. But she's the same woman. Then you look at another brand within the portfolio, like Laura Piana, which sells multi-thousand-dollar uh, cashmere vests that does not have a target shopper. So I think this luxury is sort of a catch-all for uh, a group of products that are relatively high priced for their category, that are typically sold in very you know carefully marketed and, and aspirational settings. But beyond that, there's no commonality across the spectrum. And even when I think of the data that you showed, the one point something trillion, I say, what does that include? I mean, is a Mercedes in the same category as a as a perfume that has to have cars in it it's just too big of a number exactly now all this i mean you used to uh, we'll get into lvmh in a bit but you used to do this you know you're loading up the stores flooding it for spring and summer chock full of stuff global shutdown all the doors are closed they're sitting on tons of inventory so you know you're part of the industry used to like do all kinds of things it's like thou shalt not discount we'd rather destroy our products so, are they still doing stuff like that um, well, some brands can get away with it. Many brands can't. I mean, when you said, for example, that in Q2, 60% of sales are going away, there are segments of luxury like fashion where it's close to 100%. In fact, I just saw a report come out uh, on Canada Goose. They have virtually no sales. Who's buying a high-end parka <laughs> as we go into the summer season and stores are closed 
and people don't have discretionary income, you know, and none of these goods, the one other commonality across all these different segments of luxury is that they're totally discretionary. You know, yeah. food is not. So Especially, I think yeah. these segments will be far, far more harder hit than the 60% you cited. Yeah, it was a it was a uh, an easy figure, not not something harsh. The Canadian goose is um, there's a lesson there about product diversity, you know, diversifying the line and all that stuff. Maybe we'll have their CEO on and see what's going on there. Let's jump into something a little more fun, though. Um, tell us about your uh, experiences at uh, SiriusXM. I know you started out on the Business Channel, but now you're doing something much more fun. To, uh, what do you? What's yeah. some of the? What what some of the things you do on the show? Well, I've always been fascinated with creative people. And, uh, you know, if there was a way to make money of it, in it, I'd probably be in the arts. Um, but I found that the closest uh, intersection between an opportunity to actually pay my bills and to be with creatives is in this sort of luxury consumer branded area. So in the very beginning, I just invited leaders uh, who either were founders of exciting creative brands, people who worked in companies like LVMH or Estee Lauder, where I worked earlier in my career, and just tried to understand how you, you know, the, the process of commercializing great aesthetic concepts. Um, what I found after a couple of years of doing that is uh, as much as I enjoy talking with these individuals, I really wasn't that interested in talking about business. I was really more interested in talking about the creative process. And so flash forward a few years, they moved me to the Stars Entertainment channel. I still have a lot of creative business minds on the show, but I like to talk about how ideas are, um, are brought to life. I like to talk about where those ideas come from. Uh, I'm fascinated with trend, and I don't mean fashion trend. I mean even trend in areas like technology, trends and social movements. So, you know, I find anyone who has something to say, and hopefully you'll be a guest down the road as well, because you have a lot to say, uh, has, a, has a place on my show, and, and it's called Tastemakers. Ah, Tastemakers. Oh, I love that. That's actually a nice, nice title. Uh, and you guys program on, uh, on Saturdays. Are you live on Saturdays? Um, so we pre- uh, we pre-record during the week, and then it airs several times on the weekend, Saturdays and Sundays. Oh, so nice. On the leisure hours. Perfect. Well, I'm going to put that link in the uh, podcast there so people can check it out. Uh, so let's talk about your, your career because it's fascinating. The um, You spend a lot of time at LVMH, uh, ending up as the uh, the North American chairwoman. Do they call you chairwoman there? Was that hard they your your bio exit says chairman in the bio yeah exit. you know what I, I I just went with the the pithy option I don't yeah. think there is a right or wrong on that one oh good I'm not in trouble there good um no. so tell us about that role what did you do I mean massive amount of brands global reach so much going on um, well the challenge the- that LVMH had um, because it's a it's a French owned company um, it has as you mentioned over seventy brands that are mostly born and 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 run out of various European markets. And yet the U.S., by the time I joined, was the single largest individual market. And yet the brand heads were all sitting in France and Italy, in a few cases Switzerland, in the case of the watch companies. Um, And they really didn't have good visibility into what, for many of them, was their largest market. So I was sort of sitting in this matrix structure between um, where the brands were were being led globally and uh, where the business was really happening on the ground. Um, I found most of the executives would come to New York. Maybe they fly to Beverly Hills and they forgot that America is a much more complex place than it often is understood outside looking in. So my job was two, was two or threefold. It was being you know, eyes and ears for the global heads, again, mostly in Europe. It was being a leader in the U.S. where there was sort of a vacuum of leadership. 
Uh, you have 25,000 people, or you did when I was there, working out of the U.S., but they all felt they worked for one brand. They didn't feel the enormity of working for this very big group. Right. So that was the other facet of the job, was giving them a center that was closer to home. Yeah, and you were downtown New York, so what What was the environment like there? It was, like, it was kind of like Devil Wears Prada kind of uh, stereotype, or what? <laughs> Like I'm just visual, I'm visualizing your office, people running around screaming, stuff like that. I mean, I'm sure if I if I you know was working on the store level um, or in the PR circles, I would have felt that. But the reality is, where I was sitting, you know, attending board meetings and executive committee meetings, it was more barbarians at the gate. You know, it was very very competitive. Uh, I'd say that the toughest aspect of working there, and and most of my colleagues, my American colleagues, would agree, is is working for a French company. I had been. Prior to that, with several multinational companies, I'd been with Bain, I'd been with the Carlyle Group, I'd been with Estee Lauder, Avon, um, but every one of them pre-LVMH were headquartered in the U.S. So right. it was a, very easy. I, and here I was, you know, working for a French company, and I felt like I was the head of a colony. And Americans, as we know from history, don't deal very well with being colonized. No, so, we don't so. like that. <laughs> Oh gosh, the uh, so yeah, I was a uh, CEO of uh, TNS Media, so it kind of reported into a French uh, headquarters. I can I totally totally understand that. Uh, we ended up we ended up selling that to WPP, Martin Sorrell, and uh, in the UK. So we went from one colony to the other. Uh, empire. <laughs> Fascinating, good stories. The um, but you mentioned barbarians at the gate. Let's uh, let's talk about Tiffany. It's been on and off, I think, since November. I'm trying to buy it. Tiffany hard to get. Changing the offers now. I think in yesterday's press they said something like, um, you know, we're not going to buy shares in the public market. I love the French press releases. They're like two lines. That's all you. That's, uh, that's all it was. And um, but it was pretty clear to me. Um, do you think it's a good idea? Should they keep picking up these these well, iconic brands? I mean, Tiffany to me is like that's a good one. So I, I don't think there's any second guessing of the strategic rationale. I think there's serious second guessing as there should be of the price. Right. So they uh, made an offer. They had actually upped the initial offer to $16 billion, which is basically an all time high um, for that brand. Um, Tiffany's been hit uh, on both fronts. The fact that uh, the coronavirus has um, not only closed retail around the world and, and disproportionately affected luxury goods, but now with the riots, even as they were gearing up to open, they really won't for some time. And um, Tiffany, unlike other LVMH properties, uh, is a US-centric company. So I think that they just cannot justify at this point a, a premium that was offered in a very different environment. So there, there are three options that LVMH has, and I can tell you that they will have ruled out one of those three. So option one was just proceed as planned. We signed a deal. There was no out other than in the courts. Uh, option two is renegotiate, something we can live with uh, and continue to take a long-term approach. And option three is back out altogether because, frankly, our priorities have changed in the six months since we announced the deal. Um, and I think it'll, it'll certainly be number two or three, but number two is going to be a hard one for the Tiffany shareholders because I don't think we're talking about shaving a few hundred million off. No. I think we're probably talking couple about a couple billion, couple billion. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's tough. It's, uh, you know, retail valuations are not like that. It's almost like a tech valuation. And it's, uh, so what we've seen in the Revive beauty index data is, you know, a lot of things that you used to manage, you know, cosmetics and, um, skincare have been going through the roof, easy things you can buy online. I don't see that happening with 
high-end jewelry. So that was almost a third hit they had. You know, it's hard to buy something if the store's boarded up, but the people aren't even in the mood to spend on that type of luxury. I think and, tr- and, and travel luxury was t- totally shut down too. I think that'll come back probably so, quicker. You know, my information might be a bit dated here, but uh, historically the New York City flagship on 57th and 5th Avenue, the Tiffany flagship. Love that store. Yeah. A beautiful store. Uh, obviously the, you know, there's a lot of heritage there, but that was about 25% of their global sales for all the different stores that they have around the world. Right. And, um, and that store is a tourist location. I would say probably 60% of the shoppers there are non-American. So we're not going to see them come back anytime soon, even if the protests go away and the rioting is less of a threat. Uh, the whole nature and desirability for luxury products, I think, has waned and will take a long time to get back on track. Yeah, that's why I brought up the uh, the China data. Everyone always wonders why I bring up China. So, well, because they're buying a lot of this stuff, and it's the traveler that's buying a lot of this stuff as well. That's and the last I checked, I don't think we've lifted the travel ban from China for this country. And so, yeah, I heard today that they, uh, they they're in negotiations. Basically, uh, you know, Trump just came out recently saying he was going to uh, ban all Chinese flights from coming in because they had banned uh, Delta and United from going to China. Right. So, you know, it's a bit of a tete-a-tete. And I, but I think the, the, the bigger issue, whether there are flights or no flights, is just the appetite to travel. It's going to take a long time for people to feel comfortable. People don't even feel comfortable going to a, uh, a restaurant that's open. You know, restaurants that have opened in locations in the U.S. where the uh, quarantine has been lifted, they're still down to 80 percent. Exactly. And the only saving grace there is the it's summertime. I mean, my girlfriend and I went downtown Denver last night and uh, it was fantastic sitting outside. But <laughs> he asked, he said, would you like to come inside? She's like, no, what, what? Uh-huh. Sit right out here is fine. And were you wearing a mask? Uh, um, no, just to get there. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To kind of like get seated. But once you're seated, it was, you know, yeah. a, lot, a lot of space. Well, you can't get that in a lot of cities. They, it's too tight. And mm-hmm. in one of the towns here and Littleton, Colorado, they're on Saturday nights. The proposal is to just shut down the streets. So the restaurant tours, they don't want them to go to business. Um, but I feel the same way about retailers um, can then put all the tables out on the street and just take up more room. So it's they're desperately trying to uh, get people back to a normal. But travel um, travel's tough. We're probably going to have United and Delta American Marriott on uh, sometime this year. Um, just giving them time right now. They just they don't have time to really talk. Uh, but yeah, when you, when you have people like us who travel two, three times a week, not still in fear, I'll just say it. There's some fear there of the uncertainty. It's uh, it's tough. Even people I know in the travel industry, we're gonna have the head of a of uh, one of the major casino brands on soon. Um, he just took his first trip, and you know, oh. took pictures of it and posted it. I'm like, you never post pictures of yourself on a plane, right? So yeah, it's 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 tough. Um, well, thanks for your comments on uh, Tiffany. It'd um, be interesting to see how that one plays out. My my opinion on any type of acquisitions in a downturn is a great time to you know be more of a conglomerate. Uh, capitalist pig side of me says that. So you're looking, you see a lot of the tech companies doing that. You know, Google, Amazon, and many others are uh, looking to roll things up. Speaking of tech, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about AI on this show, artificial intelligence, and you wrote a book uh, about AI, but it's the other AI. It's aesthetic intelligence, a new book that came out this year. Uh, We'll put the link in the podcast. Fantastic book. Um, A lot of questions about it, but maybe just the open-ended one to get you started. Why'd you write it? What's it about? How can it help 
we, we tend to have a lot of indie brands on the show, giving them a chance to, you know, and it's really tough for them out there now, obviously, from a funding perspective and just getting people to spend the money. So, yeah, I'd love to hear about the book and maybe how, uh, what indie brands could maybe learn from some of the aesthetic intelligence tips. Sure. Well, so my alter title for the book, which uh, not too many people know, is uh, what they never taught me at the Wharton Business School. So I graduated ah, from nope. Wharton as a marketing major in uh, 95, and I did what a lot of people do when they come out of school and have no idea what they're going to do with the rest of their life. I went into management consultant consulting. I was nice. a strate- strategy consultant at Bain. Um, and uh, my first real job, which was post-Bain, uh, was at Estee Lauder. Um, I went there having never worked in the cosmetic industry. I only knew how to apply it to my own face. And I remember very early on, I took that Bain toolkit and I was going to, you know, as as their head of strategy, impress them with a very voluminous deck. Conquer, conquer them, yes. Conquer them and bring them into the, you know, near 21st century. We weren't quite there yet. And um, my boss, who was the COO at the time, eventually the CEO, sort of slammed down the deck and he said, Colleen, you know, I need you to think like an owner and act like an owner here, not like an observer which is basically what Bain trains you to do very well. And, um, and I realized that, you know, unless I had sort of real empathy for why a woman would come to a counter, spend maybe five or six times for one product that she could spend on a very similar product in a drugstore, unless I really understood and, and was able to get to that moment of truth more authentically, that I really wasn't well suited for this industry. And, you know, over the course of the next 20 years, even when I went to the Carlisle Group, I was investing in premium brands. And I felt there was this this other sensibility that they never taught me at Wharton, that that other sensibility uh, that might have been introduced earlier in my career really took sort of some hard knocks on the job. And, uh, And it was that there's this concept which very loosely we think of as brand management or brand marketing, but even brand marketing as a sort of clinical and very analytic uh, thought process. And it's not to say I I, I, um, eschew that kind of thinking. I just think it has to be complemented by an understanding of of craft and of art and of an emotional appeal that certain products have, certain services can offer, environments can create that kind of speaks to our humanity. And when I, well before I wrote the book and I was leaving the world of big business, I was teaching uh, or I, I was pitching the opportunity to teach at the Harvard Business School, I said, there's this new way of interacting and thinking about the customer that really hasn't entered our vernacular. And the then dean of the school said, well, that's interesting. What would you call this class? And I really hadn't even thought about a name. And I just, well, it's kind of like the business of aesthetics. And she said, oh, I love it. How do you spell it? (laughs) And that was the beginning of a course that then uh, two years later um, uh, turned into a book project. The reason that the book is not entitled Business of Aesthetics is because what I realized after teaching for some time that there was something missing from my coursework that was not just looking at businesses in terms of how they might be transformed through aesthetic value, through infusing, creating great aesthetic value, but it's how do you as an individual, whether you're the CEO or the CFO or the CMO, or a founder, in the case of many of your listeners, how do you actually bring that into the company? Where does it start? And I concluded it really starts with one's own aesthetic intelligence. And then from there, it goes into your strategy and into everything you do, basically. 
Yeah, we had the founder and CEO of Credo on last week, and they've they've done an amazing job. You know, at a smaller level, they don't have thousands of stores, but it's they've they've kept that um, that uh, throughout. And it's a uh, they've set up a really nice platform. I think they're gonna I think they're gonna do well Ooh. as a kind of a hybrid brand that brings in all the independent brands that are truly clean and pass all the tests and you know not on the dirty list as they call it. Um, it so uh, the. Um, and then what, um, so you, you, you taught that at uh, Harvard that kind of accumulated into a book, kind of sounds like my process. It just, you, you, between writing and teaching, okay. it's just all, you have all this content. Uh, but you're also doing Columbia. So um, Columbia, Harvard, uh, mm -hmm. different styles of teaching, <laughs> different styles of teaching for you there? Yeah, well, what, one of, the, you know, the, the caliber of students at both places, first rate, as is the case with, with Kellogg, with Wharton, yeah. Um, but I felt, um, I mean, the, to be completely candid, the reason I migrated to Columbia is because I live in New York and the commute's yeah. a lot. So I like the commute. It's nice. <laughs> but the other point I'll make is um, Harvard is very religious. You probably know this about their case study method. And yes. there really have been no cases ever written around this concept that, you know, I'm still trying to socialize. So I kind of had to make them up as I went. And so Columbia offers a bit more flexibility in how I teach what I teach. Uh, but both schools are are wonderful and provide a platform for me to experiment and to test to test how even my own students at that stage in their life can cultivate their own aesthetic intelligence, which, by the way, is a fancy word or or term for taste. Exactly. Yeah, I think you said somewhere in your book or, or somewhere I, I read that uh, companies have kind of lost their uh, their reason for being their raison d'être. And um, what do you mean by that? Well, um, I, I'm sure I've said that in many different contexts. If I, I like just, it when you say it in French better, actually. <laughs> the raison d'etre. Um, so, um, you know, I think it's m most obvious when it comes to retail. We are just, ret retail has become a scale game. I think everyone in a race to try to, um, if not catch up to Amazon, at least uh, try to uh, sort of stave off the competitive threats, have um, taken an approach that they will never win. I always say there's... No, Defeated. Nobody, yeah. nobody can do Amazon better than Amazon and nobody can do Walmart better than Walmart. But if you're a retailer, whether you have five stores or you have a hundred or you have a thousand, you have to double down on the things that they can never do. Um, Amazon, for example, can never um, can never appeal to people's aspirational dreams. It's not they're not in the business. They're there to solve a problem and to do it as as cheaply, as quickly, as as seamlessly as possible. And they do that very, very well. Exactly. But why do people buy? I mean, most people, if they're going to buy one product over another, choose one brand over another, it, there's a huge emotional con component to that. And, um, and very few companies, although, uh, I would say, tap into that fully. Yeah. Yeah, we had Steve Dennis on Remarkable Retails, his book, and it's just, they're just unremarkable. I mean, I did a book project with Seth Godin, so he kind of hijacked the, you know, remarkable retail, and it's very tough. And one of the issues that they cite is they trying to be like Amazon or Walmart was your first mistake. What else have you made mistakes on the, um, and it's interesting during the pandemic and the shutdown and the quote unquote, you're essential. I'm not essential. Apparently <laughs> Tiffany's wasn't essential. Um, <laughs> I think it should have been what's wrong with love, right? It's like, come on, they, all the liquor stores and marijuana stores are open out here. Anyway, but, um, I digress. Liquor, luxury liquor is doing just fine. Exactly. The that's a good point. Um, anyway, my point there was, um, you know, the whole uh, concept of Walmart and um, 
and Amazon, they have become more utilitarian during this crisis. Yes. They're almost like they're like the post office now. And so I think there's an opportunity to differentiate and stand out and be more remarkable because of that. If you can survive is the comma question is you know, that's the issue now. And, and, you know, many won't survive. Um, they can't undo the past. They have too large a footprint. Um, they, you know, have been selling stuff. And this is the first time in human history where even the poorest segments of our society, of our, of our at least in mature market society, are not wanting. You know, they're not starving on the streets. They may not be well nourished, but they're not starving. Even the poorest segments are not needing another T-shirt. They may not have high fashion, but they're clothed. So we, you know, one of the points I'd like to make is aesthetics is not, and should never be seen as um, confined to the luxury segment. Um, I see aesthetics in the mass market all the time. I don't see a lot. Um, and therefore, you know, uh, not surprisingly, a lot of these mass market products, as well as even luxury companies that don't do it well, are going to go fall by the wayside. But, but at every price point, you can make your product or your service or your experience more aesthetic than it was. And by the way, it's not always about budget. Sometimes I think increasing uh. your works against a company. You know, and I always say, if you just take, let's just take a hospital or mm -hmm. a, an elementary school, stay away from business for a minute. Okay. Even though they're not, neither of those institutions are going to have a budget to hire the likes of a Peter Marino, one of the most expensive architects and designers in the world who does all the Chanel stores. Nobody's going to hire him, but there's somebody in your operation who is going to decide what color paint puts, goes on the wall or what pattern of tile goes on the floor. And at every, uh, at, 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 at every price point for tile, you have thousands of permutations that can still meet your functional needs. I'm not saying all of a sudden you should put a tile that's going to get scratched or not wear properly. And I think if you understand if you're in that hospital or in that school facility, that these decisions actually have an emotional impact on how children learn, on how patients heal, then maybe you should just be more mindful. So uh, so some of the most exciting ideas I have, I see around me in stores, in restaurants, uh, they didn't come with a bigger budget than their large-scale competitors. They just came with a better eye, more compassion, um, a, a attention to detail that's required, uh, a caring it's a lot about caring and authenticity. Okay. I'm, I'm sensing a, a book series here. Functional aesthetics would be next or cost, <laughs> effect, or cost effective ones for the retailers. Um, uh, how big was your um, uh, beauty cosmetics skincare business at LVMH back in the day? So if you take Sephora out, which is now the number one retailer yeah. in the U.S. of cosmetics, and you just talk about the cosmetic brands, yeah. uh, uh, it was about um, uh, approaching a third of our business. Wow. So um, we had, a, a, across many different brands, you have Dior Parfum, you have uh, uh, Benefit Cosmetics, Fresh, which is a skincare brand, um, Makeup Forever. I mean, there were many, many different brands, some of which are sold in Sephora, many of which are not. And, um, and then earlier in my career, I spent, my, I spent about a decade in the cosmetic industry where 100% of what my employer was selling was in the broadly defined world of beauty. Yeah, we had the uh, we had the chief innovation officer on from Este the other day, and it was uh, we had a we had a nice chat, a lot about love and compassion and creativity and how to you know inject it into brands and and keep them on their edge and competitive. One of the trends we're seeing at Revive is obviously um, more personalization, more bring your own device, 
taking a picture of yourself, not using and touching the store devices. And so that whole, you know, use your own device trend, we're seeing that across all brands, all types of stores. How, how do you think the retail experience is going to change over the next couple of the years, given what we're coming out of? Well, or quite frankly, what, what we're still in. Most, most people think yeah. we're coming out of it. We're going to be in it for a while. We're going to be in it for a while. There, there is always going to be a, um, a limitation to technology when it comes to such an aesthetic uh, concept as, as cosmetics and beauty. If you think about the word aesthetics, uh, it, aesthetics is not the same, by the way, as beauty. It's not a synonym for beauty, uh, and it's not for design either, which is visual and tends to be more about harm, harmony. Aesthetics is about the senses. It actually comes from the Greek word aesthetikos, which uh. is uh, unrelated to an anesthesiologist, for example, whose job is to numb your senses. So a great aesthetic experience typically arouses more than just visual. It, it, it can be the it can be the scent, which you get no sense of when you're doing something through technology. Right. It can be the feel they have uh, they call it the slip if it's a, a lipstick or uh, even a face cream. Mm -hmm. And um, so I would say that technology is a nice enhancement, um, and the ones that are doing it well really are integrating the technology with the offline uh, in ways that um, complement. But I don't see a day where we would see 80% of sales and of trend being set through any one of these, um, you know, digital forums. Yeah, it's meant to be. I just wrote an article about this. It's to me, it's it's AI and it's the invisible enabler. The technology needs to fade in the background. It just needs to help. So in some cases, it's it's an assisted technology in the store where you have the beauty consultant or whatever. In other cases, it's self-serve. In other cases, it's like I want to touch it. Mm -hmm. It's okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and, and the whole visual aesthetics thing is, is huge, too. Like, your background is great. I'm, I'm visualizing the hand now when we get off the network. <laughs> I want to see, next time we're on, I want to see the champagne bottle in the hand. That. <laughs> well, what you do see in the hand, actually, back here, is a necklace. I see the ring, the necklace, and yeah. And I it as a ring. Um, and if you're going to take away anything about my personality from my aesthetic choices, it's that I, I like to bring in some whimsy and some unexpected and some humor. I love it. Oversized. I guess it just reminds me how small I am. I'm actually not so small, but next to that hand, I'm feeling very small. Exactly. Uh, I also have a, a taxidermy peacock if I were to change the direction of this camera. Of course you do. Perhaps we'll put a picture of that on the, uh, on the <laughs> podcast. That'd be cool. Send it to me. Uh, you've been listening to Pauline Brown. She is just an amazing uh, luxury guru and um, catch her on XM radio. And uh, any parting thoughts for... Uh, aspiring entrepreneurs who are actually starting companies in the luxury brand world? Well, you mentioned, and I would agree that the challenges in the near term will hit entrepreneurs particularly hard, whether it's because of lack of funding or lack of scale. But I'd say in the mid to long term, this is going to be uh, a, a sort of a, 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 an entrepreneurial wave 3.0. Um, I think, it, you know, big companies are so stuck and so entrenched in in, in, in ways of operating that will no longer be relevant going forward. And the, the, the agility and the creativity that's going to come out of smaller, younger companies is something that gives me a lot of confidence. And so if you can, if you can withstand the pressures of the next many months, maybe few years, uh, the other side of this is going to look very, very exciting. Yeah. Stay strong. Uh, go for the long run. Don't, don't worry about the quick hits. Thanks Pauline. Really enjoyed Thank having you. you on. Look forward to, look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah, and I got to get you on my Sirius XM show. It'll be fun. We'll do it. I like Saturdays. <laughs> Take care.